All right, 1 Corinthians 5, if you want to go there, that's where we'll be tonight. Uh, Full disclosure, this illustration that I'm about to use is one that I have stolen from my cousin Morgan Weiss, who does youth ministry at Sunnybrook, so maybe you've heard this, but this illustration is about me, so I feel like I have rights to be able to use this, all right? Uh, I am nine or ten years old. I am sitting at the kitchen table back in my house in Muskogee, Oklahoma, and I've got a piece of paper out, and I am furiously scribbling a note to my mom. And I'm scribbling this note to my mom because something has just happened, and I don't remember what it was exactly, but I just got in trouble for something, and I'm not happy about it. Okay, so I feel like I've been treated unfairly. Uh, I feel like she came down too hard on me, so I'm angry, and here I am with this note. And I'm writing this thing, and it said something to the effect of, uh, Dear Mom, uh, since it's clear that I'm not loved anymore in this home, I'm running away, and you'll never see me again. Signed, your used-to-be son, Drew. And I left that on the paper, and then I just stormed out of the house. And I made my way down the street. Now, I don't know what my mom's exact reaction was when she saw that note. I'm guessing she wasn't too concerned because uh, in kind of a full confession here, that's probably the fourth or fifth runaway note I had left in the last like year. All right, it kind of become a thing. And generally what I did was I wrote the note. I'd walk about four houses down, hide behind a tree for a little while, probably five or ten minutes, and then come back, right? Uh, But this time was going to be different, darn it, all right? And this time was different. This time I did not just walk four houses down and hide behind a tree. I walked eight houses down and hid behind a trash can. And so there I was behind the trash can, and I didn't just wait for like five or ten minutes. I waited for a good long while this time. I don't know how long it was. It felt like an hour. It was probably like 20 minutes. But it was long enough for my mom to actually get a little bit worried. And I know this because I remember peeking out from behind the trash can and seeing my mom make her way out into the driveway and kind of looking up and down the street and even calling my name. So I know that this time she was a little bit worried, even though she knows I'm just doing that thing that Drew does, but who knows, it's been longer this time and maybe somebody snatched him and all these things. And so she's starting to get a little worried, which I'm happy about, right? And so I wait a little bit longer to sufficiently prove my point, and then I walk back towards the house, and I walk in the living room, and I see my mom in the living room, and I look at her, her, and I say to her, well, I hope that I've taught you a lesson. (laughs) Now, there's some people who wonder today whether or not God exists, okay? And I just, want, I just want to tell you that I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that God exists because He somehow kept my mother from killing me in that moment, <laughs> right? Like, I know that the Holy Spirit was active in her life, miraculously saving me from whatever she was about to inflict on me. Instead of killing me, she just kind of quietly but firmly said, Drew Moss, go to your room right now. So I walked upstairs to my bedroom, feeling pretty good about myself. Meanwhile, my mom is on the phone calling my dad, saying something like, "Uh, if you don't come home right now, I'm going to kill your son. Something like that, right? And so my dad comes home, and uh, he comes, and he lays down the law. 
and, and he kind of enacts all the discipline and punishment necessary in that moment and, and gives me a long, hard talk. And then at the end of this talk, after kind of telling me all the consequences and we go through all this, he says, and one other thing, I need you to go downstairs and apologize to your mom right now. To which I replied, no, I'm not going to do that. And he said, yes, you are going to do that. You're going to go, you're going to do that right now. And I said to him, uh, no, I'm not going to tell her sorry because I don't feel sorry in my heart. <laughs> Which again, the Lord and his gracious provision <laughs> keeping me alive in that moment. I don't know how it happened other than to explain that God is real, guys. Okay, um, here's, here's the thing though. What I did not know in that moment is when I spoke those words, I'm not going to say sorry, I don't feel it in my heart. I may not have realized it, but I was basically voicing the motto of a generation in that moment. Because those words, the idea behind those words, say a lot actually about how I viewed things in that moment and really how most people have viewed, at least in our culture, have viewed things for the last 20 years. And that is for the last, and give or take, I don't know, 25 years, maybe more, maybe less. Uh, for the last 20, 25 years, if a person is trying to figure out what the right thing is to do, if they're trying to discern and look for a compass that will point them right or wrong, what is, uh, what is the right direction to go? What should I do with my life? How should I behave? The primary place that people look when they try to determine that is right here is to look in at themselves and go, what do I feel is the right thing to do in this moment? What do I feel is the best thing to do? And this is uh, like fish in water. This is the kind of belief system that pervades every aspect of our lives and our culture. One that, that we don't even question, one that is often kind of lifted up, that one of the most uh, moral and best significant things you can do in your life is this. Be true to yourself. Be true to who you are and no one else should come in and dictate to you how you live your life. You should be the one who determines how you're going to live. You should be the one who determines what you're going to do. And if there's anything that comes across to you as someone tells you this is what you should do, if anything about that strikes you as wrong or mean or offensive or hurtful, then feel free to kind of push that to the side. And don't even question you're pushing that to the side because if you question that inside of you, you're questioning yourself and you should never question yourself. The primary place you go to determine what you should do, this is at least largely kind of the message of our culture, is I ask myself, what am I feeling about this? How do, how do I feel about this? What do I think is best here? And, and that has presented to us a number of different problems. We don't have time to get into them, but one of the primary ones is that it leaves us unanchored. Because the truth is, how I feel about things changes all the time. And often it is pushed back and forth by the culture around me. This is kind of one of the weird things. The culture uh, that we live in is really big on you do you, and you live the way you want to live unless the way you want to live happens to go against the culture. And then they don't really like that whole you be yourself thing a whole lot. But the culture is constantly kind of shifting back and forth, which means that I end up getting pushed back and forth with that constantly. This is what Paul talks about in Ephesians 4 when he talks about being tossed back and forth by every type of teaching and every new idea that comes back up when we don't have anything anchoring us down. 
Here's why I'm bringing this all up. I, I, I don't want to dog feelings or emotions. I, I think feelings and emotions are good gifts from the Lord. Those are things that we should be grateful for. Those are things that I think there's even some room for, for looking to and trusting and going, why do I feel this way about this? And, and what is that saying? And kind of looking to my gut there a little bit. But the question that I think is worth, worth asking is, is the way I feel about something the best guide for what is true and right in every situation? If my dad is telling me I should apologize to my mom, but I don't feel like it, do I trust in that moment my gut and go, I shouldn't have to apologize to anyone that I don't feel like apologizing to? Or is there a standard that goes outside of my heart? Is there a standard that is bigger than what's going on in Drew's brain there that goes, no, this, this is the right thing to do, whether Drew feels like it or not? And that's the question that I want us to be thinking through a little bit. Here's why. Because over the next couple weeks, we've been in 1 Corinthians for the first four chapters. There's been some really great stuff in here. Some really good stuff about the gospel and stuff that's fun to kind of read through and think through. The next few weeks, we're going to get into some topics that are going to bump up against some of our Western American sensibilities. There are going to be some things that we're going to read about that upon first reading, you might think to yourself, I don't know if I like that. And what I want to ask you to do is to suspend judgment for just a little bit and don't first off go to, that sounds mean to me or that sounds harsh and so I don't don't want to hear that. For just a, a bit, I want you to think through, what if there's something to this? What if, if it's true that God is the creator of all things and that he created us, what if it would be that since he designed us, the words that he gives us for how to live are not just arbitrary rules meant to be mean, but what if they have our best interests in mind? Like if someone made a car and they told you, by the way, you should change the oil every 3,000 miles and make sure it runs on this kind of gasoline that you're using, this kind of fuel, we wouldn't say, hey, that's mean of you to tell me how to drive my car. We would go, no, no, I get it. You made the car, you designed it, so you probably know how it works best. And what if that's what's actually going on here? I want to ask you to kind of just keep that in your mind as we read things, even if it's a little bit difficult at first. By the way, in two weeks, we're going to have a special guest here. His name is Caleb Kaltenbach, and Caleb is going to walk us through one of those areas a little bit. Caleb, just a little background on him, grew up in a home where when he was very young, his parents divorced, and his mom came out as lesbian and then moved in with her lesbian partner, and his dad then also came out as gay and moved in with his gay partner. And so he spent his life back and forth between his mom's house and his dad's house, deeply ingrained in the LGBT community, and loves the LGBT community very much because it's near and dear to his heart because those are people that he loves. And he also really loves this book and the Word of God. And so he has spent a lot of his life working through what does it look like for me to love people in this community that I am near and dear to and to hold true to the words that are spoken in this book. And so in a couple of weeks, he's going to come share a little bit about that and share some of his own story. It, it is something that you will not want to miss. October 21st, we hope that you'll be here on that night to hear those things. There's some really great uh, stuff from him. There's some really great stuff that we're going to be reading in the next few weeks. Um, 
And like I said, 1 Corinthians 5 is one of it. So let's jump in here. We're going to kind of skim a little bit because uh, we because of my super long intro there that I wanted to touch on. But 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 2, Paul has been dealing with division and arrogance in the church. Now he's going to address a specific outworking of this arrogance, which will seem a little bit crazy to you when you first read it. Here he says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? So we see this truth that Paul catches wind that there's someone in the church, probably a leader, probably someone of somewhat kind of high standing socially or economically, who is actually, whoa, sorry about that. Okay, we're good, we're good, okay. Who is uh, sleeping with his stepmom, with his father's wife? I'm going to try and hold that out there, make sure that doesn't happen again. Now, in the Greco-Roman world, in the world that Paul is living in, uh, not for the Jewish people, but for the Gentile people, pretty much anything goes sexually. Like, they don't have a lot of limits on what they think is good and bad, but even in this world, incest and interfamilial sexuality is viewed as something that is taboo and wrong. So Paul says, listen, even the Gentiles around you, even the people who aren't Christians think that this is crazy. This should not be something that's a part of you. But he's not just appalled by the situation. He's actually just as, if not more appalled by the church's response that they're okay with it, and not just okay with it, but that they, they seem to be proud of it. Now, how in the world would anybody ever be proud of an incestuous relationship in their church? The answer is probably one of two things. One is, it, it has to do with a deeper, these people feeling like they have a deeper level of knowledge about what is okay and what is not. It could be that because of their newfound freedom in Christ and the grace that is given them in Jesus, they go, listen, we know the truth. And that is that a person can live however they want to because of God's grace that has been given to them, which is an absolute twisting of what God's grace is. But they thought that they had that figured out. Another possibility, and I think that it could be a blending of these two things, um, is Greek dualism really held that there were these kind of two realms, the physical and the spiritual, and we're all made up of both physical bodies and then spiritual. The physical is kind of the bad, yucky, dirty stuff that we all put up with, but the spiritual, that's the real you, that's the pure you, that's the good you. And so there were a lot of people who believed that it doesn't really matter what I do with my body. I can do whatever I want. It's the spirit that matters. Regardless of what it is, these people thought that they were on kind of a higher level than everybody else, and they understood that other pe- what other people didn't. And so they could see, yeah, to you ignorant people, this might seem taboo, but we know that this is okay. Paul is angered by this, and he says, what you ought to do is not be happy, but you ought to mourn and you ought to remove this man from your congregation. That is, to excommunicate him or to kick him out of the church is what you need to do. He goes on in verse 3. Even though I am absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as one who is present with you in this way, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. 
When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So Paul says, I'm not with you. I'm not there, but I am there with you in spirit. You know my thoughts. I've put them down on paper here for you. You know what I think, and you've got my authority and my support to come together as a church, and he says, hand that man over to Satan. Now that sounds kind of freaky. That sounds like some sort of weird, dark magic ritual or something like that. That's, that's not what he's talking about. He's essentially saying the same thing. That is, you remove him from the church. He is no longer a part of the realm of God's people. He is out into the realm of the world, which the Bible sometimes describes as kind of the domain of Satan. It's the place where Satan has sway and control over people. And so he's saying, he, he goes into this category now. This is where you place him for the destruction of the flesh. Paul will often use this word flesh to mean sinful nature to mean that kind of natural sinful part in a person that wants to do the selfish thing, that wants to move away from God and His purposes. And he says, you hand them over to that for the destruction of that so that sinful nature might be rebuked and done away with in Him. Verse 6, Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, to understand this section that Paul just went into, you need to know a little bit of the Old Testament background. Uh, The most famous event in all of Israel's history, up until the point that Jesus comes, the most famous event in all of history is the Exodus. And this is the moment or the time when God's people were enslaved in Egypt. The Israelites were living as slaves in that land. And then God comes in and miraculously uh, delivers them. And they exit from Egypt. The exodus there. He miraculously delivers them. And to commemorate this, every year they would have a special event to remember this. A special feast called Passover. And at Passover, there were a number of different rituals associated with it. But one was that all their bread was to be made without yeast. It was supposed to kind of represent the hurry that they left Egypt in. There's not time to let the bread rise, to let the dough rise to cook. No, 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 there's not time for that. We're leaving in a hurry. We're out of here as soon as God makes a way. And so during Passover feast, for seven days, you did not cook uh, or bake any bread with leaven or yeast in it. In fact, you were supposed to clean your entire house of any sort of yeast or leaven. It shouldn't even be in there. And so over time, Jewish teachers began to use this idea of removing leaven or yeast just as God's people would do back or in that time of Passover. It was kind of this symbol of removing sin from you, to remove impurities and holiness or, or unholy things from you and from your community. And this is what Paul is talking about here, to remove the sinful influence of this man so that it does not spread across the rest of of the church. Verse 9. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of the world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. 
So one of the kind of interesting things we see here, we haven't known this until now, but Paul says here, I've written to you before. That means 1 Corinthians is not actually 1 Corinthians, technically. There was another Corinthians before that, zero Corinthians or whatever you want to call it. Um, that, that was written. We don't have that letter. But we know that Paul wrote to them. He actually wrote to them about this idea that they ought not to associate with people who are living in these kinds of sin. But there was some confusion. And this is the same confusion that has actually plagued the church for many years in a lot of different generations. And that was that they were under the understanding that they should not associate with the sinful people of this world. Paul says that's not true. First of all, that's not possible. To live in this world means you're going to be around people who disagree with what this book says and who are going to live lives contrary to that. You would have to leave the world to not be around people like that, he says. But that's not what you're here for. No, the church is supposed to be around other people like that and supposed to be able to love them. Paul says what I met is the people who are in the church, the people who call themselves Christians but refuse to live like this, refuse to live like Jesus has called them to. Those people you have nothing to do with. And notice here that the list has gotten bigger. This is kind of easy when someone's involved in an incestuous relationship to go, yeah, that's kind of bad. We should probably not have that guy around here. But now Paul opens it up to all sexual sin. And the biblical definition of that is pretty broad. Basically, anything sexual that is not between a man and woman in a marriage relationship, Paul says. Or uh, swindlers, people who are ripping people off, or people who are greedy, or people who are verbally abusive with their mouths, who are divisive and tearing people down. He says, those people you are not to associate with. Don't even eat with someone like that, he says. That gets pretty intense. And he continues in verse 12, For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders, but you remove the evil person from among you. So Paul says that he doesn't judge those who are outside of Christ, who are outside the church, because technically judgment is something that comes to everyone. And it is only because of Jesus that we don't have to face the judgment of God, that, that Jesus taking our sins. So a person who doesn't have Jesus, Paul says, is going to end up having to face judgment in the end from God anyway. Why would I want to heap on that, Paul says. I don't want to do that. He says, instead, no, the judgment is for those who are inside. And, and clarification, by judgment, he doesn't mean when he says don't judge, he doesn't mean you can't say something is wrong or right. Paul has no problem calling things wrong when they're wrong. What he says by don't judge is he means we don't discipline. We don't discipline those outside the church. We don't try to ostracize or inflict anything on those kinds of people. We do enact church discipline within the church, he says. For those who are living lives in the church that aren't, li that aren't in line with God and with His Word, then we do that. And so here is that area where I have to be careful about gauging something by how I feel about it. Because if I'm honest, at first glance, that sounds mean to kick people out of the church for sinning. That sounds harsh. That sounds judgy. And actually, if I actually dig through the Bible, it's not just me. Actually, this doesn't just seem to contradict with how I feel sometimes. If I'm honest, this can, upon first glance, seem to contradict with much of the Bible's teaching, specifically the Bible's teaching on grace. Is it not true that Christianity is a religion and that this is a book built around the grace that God has given to us, that we are, the Bible says, all of us sinful people? 
And what makes the gospel really good news is that I get to be invited into God's family not because I'm a really good person. I'm not a really good person. It has nothing to do with my ability to be good enough. I am invited in because He loves me and extends grace to me in Jesus. Romans 5, 8, that while this is how we know what God's love is like, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even when I was still messed up, God loved me enough to send His Son to die for me. Or Galatians 2, 8 through 9, sorry, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, that we have been saved by grace through faith. And this is not our own doing. This is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. So I am saved not by being good. I am saved by the grace that is given to me in Jesus Christ, who died to save me from my sins. And that same offer is extended to anyone and everyone who would be willing to place their faith in Jesus. So then where is the grace in what Paul has just said to us? Why... If it's all about grace and it's not all about being good enough, why does Paul say that we ought to remove people from the church to excommunicate them, to kick them out if they're not being good enough? How do we make those two things square up? That's what we're going to talk about after the break in just a few minutes. For now, if you need to stretch, stand, whatever you got to do, do that and we'll get back to it in just a few. Boom. Why? It's the question. Why does Paul, the apostle of grace, like no one talks about grace more than Paul does. Uh, It is something that he goes back to over and over again. He can't hardly get through a chapter without mentioning the word. Why does Paul, this apostle, tell us to do what he tells us in 1 Corinthians 5? Why does he talk to us about removing people from the church living in sin? Doesn't this run against what we're supposed to be? Doesn't this run against Jesus and what Jesus was like? Actually, this is kind of good to know, Paul gets this idea from Jesus. What we just read in 1 Corinthians 5 is based on Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, where Jesus talks about when a brother or sister is living in sin, he gives the process for how we work through those. And uh, very kind of simply and quickly, he says, you go to that person and you confront them. And if they listen to you, he says, wonderful, you've won them back over. And that's a great thing. He says, but if they don't, then you go and you get uh, two or three others and you bring them along with you. So it's not just kind of your word against theirs. And you talk to them through the, the two or three. And if they still refuse to listen to you. You go and you bring the church. You involve the church leadership there and they can talk to them. And if they will not listen to them, then you remove them from the church. Then you kick them out. So Jesus is actually the one who first put this together. So how do we square this with the New Testament message of grace? I want to tell you how in just a second, but first I want to give you just Three points of clarification, because it's really important that we're clear on what Paul means and what he doesn't mean here. Okay, the first we've already touched on, and that is this. Remember that we do not do this with non-Christians, only with fellow believers. So there should never be an instance where someone who is not a Christian comes to church and the church turns them away and says, you don't belong there. That is anti-Jesus. That is opposite of the way that Jesus is instructed. This goes completely against the way of Jesus, who, who, by the way, was often attacked because Jesus so often spent time around people that everyone else considers to be the worst of the worst. 
around people who were considered too sinful, too promiscuous. Those were the people that Jesus spent much of his time with. And so we would never want to to act in opposition to this. The point is that none of us is good enough to be in with God, but he welcomes us anyway. And so that's what we do with others, regardless of their background, regardless of where they're at in their life. If anyone is wanting to come and be involved in the church, they are welcome in because God has welcomed us in. The second point of clarification is this, that we do not, and this is important, remove someone for sinning. We remove someone for unrepentant sin. See, 1 John 1.8 says this, that if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. John tells us plainly, no, all of us have sin in our lives. All of us mess up. So if every time someone screwed up, we kicked them out of the church, we would have to kick everyone out. And then the last guy left would have to then kick himself out. Okay, Because there's no one who is good enough, as we talked about. There's no one who doesn't have problems in there. No, the issue is that all of us sin, but when we sin, what we are called to do is repent. And that word literally just means to change your mind. So when I see, when I've been confronted in my sin, when I see the way I've been living, then the, the goal is that I'm able to look at that and go, whoa. I don't want to live like this anymore. I don't want to live selfishly anymore. I don't want to live in a way that is hurting people. And so I change my mind and choose to live differently. And, and I won't be perfect in that. I'll probably stumble from time to time. But the goal is that I'm seeking when I see sin in my life to repent. And it's when someone refuses to do that. When the church goes and lays out someone's sin before them and they go, yeah, I don't care. It doesn't, doesn't matter. I know what I'm doing. I'm going to continue doing it. That's when church discipline kicks in. Third clear point of clarification is that this is never done by an, an individual, and it's never done on the basis of someone's opinion. So though I can and I should confront my brothers and sisters, if there's sin in their life and if I love them, then I want to go to them and help them see that so that there can be change there. But I never single-handedly like kick someone out of the church. That's not my authority. That's not my responsibility to be able to say, you shouldn't be here. That's, that's nothing that we ever do. This is something that is done by leadership, and it's never just one. Jesus says, when two or three of you are gathered together, this is Matthew 18, 20, most people view that as a prayer verse. It's actually a church discipline verse. He says, when two or three of you gather together and agree on something together in my name, that is, when you look at the Word of God, so it's not my opinion, I don't like that, so I don't want you around here. No, no. It, when I see that's, that someone's character is not matching up with the Word of God, and when they refuse to do so, this is nothing, this should never make anyone pleased or happy. This is a painful thing, but the church leadership will decide to remove that person. Now, let me get to this. Why do we do this, and how does it fit with the message of God's grace? How do those two things square up together? According to Paul, we see these things. According to Paul, first, we do not do this to condemn people, but to restore them. It's actually what he says in verse 5. Did you catch that? He says, Hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. See, so Paul's 
purpose is not vindictive. He's not trying to be mean. He's actually doing this because he wants, he wants it to be restored. He wants that person to be saved on the day of judgment that, that they will not continue to uh, walk away from the grace that is extended to them in Jesus. Christ has handed that out to this man and Paul says that he is rejecting it, that he's slapping it away and then he's walking away from that and, and Paul doesn't want that. If, if you see someone who is walking toward a minefield, it's not loving to pretend that that's okay. The loving thing to do if someone is headed towards destruction is to help them know is to tell them not to be mean or vindictive, but because we love them. And one of the main goals of church discipline is to basically, uh, the word almost shock is almost the word, but to help them kind of open their eyes and see how far off course they've gone. Not uh, because we don't want them around, but for the hope that they will return back. Several years ago, there was a man in our church this would have been a decade ago, probably at least, a man in our church who he and his family had been involved for many years. And somewhere over the course of time, I don't know the story, I don't know the background, but he decided that he wanted to leave his, life, leave his wife and his kids for another woman. And so Sunnybrook walked through the process described in Matthew 18, where someone came to him and talked to him and said, dude, this isn't right. You can't do this. You can't just leave your wife of 20 years or whatever it's been. And, and he said, doesn't matter, this is what I want to do. And so more than one people, two or three, went to him and talked to him. He said, I don't care. This is, I've made up my mind. This is what I'm going to do. And so the elders spoke with him and told him he can't do this. He said, I'm doing this. And so they said, okay. And they weren't happy and they weren't thrilled. But they, they said, listen, in following what the Bible tells us to do, we are removing you from the fellowship of this church. So this, the man said, fine. And a day or two later, as he was packing up his bags and about to leave, something dawned on him. He began to see the bigness of what was happening. And the Holy Spirit used everything that had happened through the church and through his family to convict him. And he said no to his sin and he repented and came back to his family, at which point, of course, the church was welcoming him with wide open arms because this was the whole thing we wanted in the first place. We never wanted to see him go. We wanted him to be a part of it. And this is what church discipline is designed for. It doesn't always work that way, unfortunately. There are some people who choose to just walk away and stay away. But the goal is that they would be restored. Number two, Paul says that we do this to protect the holiness and the witness of the church. Look at verses 6 through 7. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch. So Paul says that the person in this instance who is sinning, they're not the only ones who are affected here that others are affected around them. Listen, we actually kind of get this idea maybe better than anybody else in history right now because for the last year and a half, many of us have either ourselves had to quarantine because we've been infected with a virus or we've had friends and family members who have had to quarantine from everyone else because they had a virus. And if that happened to you or if you did that to a family member, that was a bummer, obviously, to have to be away for two weeks. But it wasn't done because someone was trying to be mean to you. 
You didn't ask your sister or your dad to quarantine because you didn't like them and you were trying to be vindictive. You did that because you knew that there is a danger of this causing unhealth for everybody else. That if they're not uh, isolated from everyone else, that that can spread to them. How much more so should we care about protecting the spiritual health of a community? That's what this is designed to do. It is, in a sense, a quarantine and hopefully a temporary quarantine. If a man, that man leaves his wife and kids, we don't pretend that it's okay because it can destroy not just his family, but it can destroy the health of the church when other people look around and go, I guess this is how we live now. I guess this is fine. And it can destroy the witness of the church when people look and go, oh, that's what Christians are like? Oh, Christians are fine with that? That's that's not how we want to live. We are, Paul has said in 1 Corinthians 3, I believe, that we are the temple of God. And so the church is meant to be the holy dwelling place of God. And of course, it should be said that the reason we care about the church's holiness is ultimately because we care about God's holiness. Because He, the one who gave Himself for us, the one who loved us and made us for Himself, is worth living our lives in accordance with Him. His holiness is that important. His holiness is that beautiful, and we want to live in line with that. Here's the third way that we believe this actually fits with grace. We enact church discipline because that is who we are in Jesus. Let me explain that. Actually, let me read that. Verse 7 He says, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch. And then did you read those next four words? As indeed you are, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Those four words right there. Clean out the the yeast so you can be an unleavened, so you can be a pure and holy church. As indeed you are. Those are key to understanding what's going on there. He's not saying to them that you need to be holy church and you haven't attained that yet, so you better do better. And you better get rid of everyone who's not that. And you better work hard to get to the place that you should be. No, what he's saying to them is you already are holy. So let's live that out. This is contrary to every other religion that says you need to get to this level. You haven't attained it yet, so do enough good works to get to the point where you can be here. Christianity says Christ has already made you this, regardless of what you've done. Outside of your own ability, He has made you this, and so now we live out what is true of us. And that's what He says, that Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. He's already paid for our sins. He's already made us holy. He's already made us pure. So now we live this out. You see, the problem is that grace, when we say, how does this fit with grace? The problem is that grace is actually bigger than most people know. When Jesus died and then rose again, He did not just do that to free you from sin's guilt. He also did it to free you from sin's power. And yes, Jesus died to forgive you of all your sins, but He also died to make you new. My son has been playing baseball here this year. This is his first year, 10 and under. And so he's been out there doing uh, kid pitch stuff and learning. Like, like It's kind of a steep learning curve when you just jump, jump in there, but he's really enjoying it. What if my son, every time he got up to the plate, went and he, let's see, he's able to hit the ball. He hits the ball and then he gets down on his hands and knees and begins to crawl to first base. He did that every time, and, and every time, obviously, he would probably get thrown out, 
because there's no way he's going to be able to get to first base in time as he's crawling all the way there as though he's 18 months old or as though he's nine months old and still trying to learn how to walk. If I were to come up to Hudson in that moment and tell him, listen, buddy, you don't have to crawl like an infant anymore. I taught you how to walk, son. I I taught you how to do that. I taught you how to run. You can go and do those things. No one would look at me and say, that's so mean of you to say to him. That's so harsh for you to say to him. No, no, no. What I'm telling Hudson is this is who you are. This is what's been given to you. This is what you have. And this is what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. When he says, when he looks at them, and they're the kind of people who had let this relationship go on in their church, and they're okay with that, he looks at all of them and he goes, you know that that's not you, right? You know that that's not who God made you to be. That's not who you are in Christ. And therefore, he says, be who you are. That phrase right there, we talked about at the beginning, that it's important to be yourself. There's actually a sense in which that's true. When people say you should be true to who you are, they're actually touching up against a very important truth, that we were designed to be who we are. But the kind of me that I'm supposed to be is not the me that is affected by my sinful nature. It is the new me that has been given to me by the grace of Jesus Christ. And actually, that phrase, be who you are, is huge. Kevin DeYoung says that all of Christian ethics, all of Christian morality is summed up in those words right there. Be who you are. It's not, Christianity is not, try to attain with your own willpower a certain goal. Try to get yourself to a certain place. Instead, it is by Christ's power at work within you. Be the man that God made you to be. Be the woman that He made you to be. He's made you new. And by the way, this is not just true of the church. This is true of on the individual level too. I think one of the reasons that it's really hard for us to take holiness seriously is because we don't often take what Jesus has done for us seriously. For a person who struggles with pornography, they find themselves often thinking, this is just kind of who I am. I've just always had this natural weakness towards these images and I can't go without it. For a person who struggles with things like self-image and trying to do things, maybe even sinful things to earn the approval of others, to try to get people to like them or to try to be involved in a relationship. For a person who tends to just gossip and tear people down and they just go, it's just kind of who I am. God made me quick with my mouth and I just naturally kind of do this stuff. People who think that way don't understand what Jesus has done for them because biblically speaking, no matter how much it may feel like that's who you are, that's not who you are anymore. You are now in Christ. You are now a son or daughter of the King for anyone who has placed their faith in Jesus. You are in Christ and pornography is not who Jesus is. And so it's not who you are. And you are in Christ and so living to please others even though it might be sinful is not who Jesus is. And because you're in Jesus, that's not who you are. And I have found in my own life some very great encouragement when I am faced with temptation, whether it be towards selfishness or towards uh, impatience or towards lust or towards pride, to be able to say to myself what the Bible says to me in Galatians 2.20, that I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. When I feel that temptation to remember this truth, that's not me. That's not the kind of thing that I do anymore. Because I am in Christ, and that's not the kind of thing that Jesus does. So, 
church, the encouragement from 1 Corinthians 5 is this. Let's be who we are. Let's be who we are in Jesus. Let's be who we are loving one another enough that when we see one of us walking towards a minefield, when we see one of us walking away from the grace that's been extended to them in Jesus, that we love them enough to go to Him and say, that's not you, man. Let's be who you are. When we see it in our own selves, when we feel the draw of the world pulling us away, when we find ourselves falling into the same habitual sin over and over again, remember what Jesus Christ has done for you and that you are now in Him. That's not who you are. The plea from the Bible over and over again is you have been made new in Jesus. So now, be who you are. Let's pray as the band comes up. Dear God, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You even for the parts that are sometimes messy feeling. (laughs) That sometimes maybe I don't naturally like. And I thank You for the truths that it reveals in us. But more than anything, I thank You for Jesus. Because I know who I am without Him. And I know my great need and I know my weakness and I'm so grateful for not just Him forgiving me of my sin, but but giving me the ability to not be controlled by it. Lord, please help us to walk in that. Help us to be who we are in Jesus as a church together and as individuals. We ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen.